Mean Old Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. Hi, this is Corner Table Talk, and I'm your host, Brad Johnson. Here we explore subjects related to food plus strength plus culture. As always, with questions or comments about our show, you can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. The James Beard Foundation, established in 1986 in a Greenwich Village townhouse and former home of its namesake until his passing in 1985, hosts the food world's equivalent of the Oscars, an annual event recognizing noteworthy achievements in hospitality. James Beard, an American chef, cookbook author, teacher, and television personality, reportedly stood six foot three and weighed 300 pounds in his prime and was, quote, fat in a way that makes thin people wistful, end quote, according to journalist John Scow, who wrote that in 1966 in the Saturday Evening Post. The Oregon-bred beard, as told by biographer John Birdsall, discovered the gay underground in London and Paris while traveling through Europe, moved to New York, and began his food career in the 1930s, catering parties thrown by Manhattan's gay and art world elites. Publisher of over 20 cookbooks in 1946, Beard hosted the first home cooking show on network television and became, quote, the most authoritative voice on American home cooking, end quote, according to the New York Times. The James Beard Foundation has had to navigate shifting tides over the past few years as restaurant culture has come into sharper focus, shedding light on toxic work environments and, in some cases, reprehensible behavior. A few big names in the industry went down. My guest today is Don Padmore, Vice President of Awards at the James Beard Foundation. Dawn packs a very impressive resume with decades of experience specializing in both concept development and hands-on production of major food events. As part of the initial team that helped launch the first New York City Food and Wine Festival, Dawn also conceptualized, launched, and served as senior producer of Harlem Eat Up, the annual festival of food and culture showcasing the talents of Harlem-based and nationally acclaimed chefs and personalities. And I can attest firsthand to how much fun that event is. I was a guest of Marcus Samuelson several years ago, and man, is that weekend a lot of fun uptown. Dawn's career began when she moved to New York City in the late 1990s. She worked as a member of a communications team producing the annual Beard Awards for more than a decade. In her current role, she works with the volunteer committees, James Beard Foundation staff and trustees to shape the future of the James Beard Awards. And how cool is this? In addition to her career in the culinary space, Dawn is an accomplished, classically trained soprano who has performed internationally and has collaborated with musicians from around the world. I'm not going to ask her to sing. I'm just going to welcome Dawn Padmore to Corner Table Talk. Hey, Dawn. <laughs> Hi, Brad. I wish you would go around with me all the time and introduce me. How that <laughs> That can be arranged. <laughs> I can do that. Thank you, so <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here. Oh, so nice to have you. Thank you. Thank you for making the time. I know this is a busy time of year. We're going to get into a bunch of stuff. And I know you've got deadlines coming up at the end of the month. So we'll we'll touch on that, too. But I kick things off with a little restaurant terminology or short order questions. So I'm going to fire a few of those at you and get your response. So tell me, Don, what is in heavy rotation on your playlist? What are you listening to these days? <sighs> 
gosh, it's a bit of a hodgepodge. Uh, Shirley Verrett, the great mezzo-soprano, sometimes soprano, uh, singing uh, Macbeth, Lady Macbeth, in the opera Macbeth by Verdi. Uh, Leonie Riesenick, another amazing soprano in the, I love the uh, final scene of Salome by Richard Strauss. Uh, Jesse Norman singing anything, uh, but in particular singing from Ariadne auf Naxos, also by Strauss. Uh, es gibt ein Reich, one of my favorite arias. And then I also have Sondheim because I'm learning uh, some uh, cabaret music. I had my first cabaret show this past year, so I'm learning new repertoire. And and Luther Vandross, Patti LaBelle, and Tina Marie. And my practice with my voice teacher, Ira. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get Ira in there. Well, I, I have to tell you, of the playlist that we've assembled, that was a pretty eclectic one. So you, thank you for, for that little journey. And where, where are you performing coming up? I'm getting ready for my second cabaret show, so I'm still learning rep. I'll probably host it again at Pangea, which is in New York City on the Lower East Side. Man, that sounds like fun. Um, okay, Don, what is your morning routine? My morning routine is to get up, try to do some stretch exercises, and have a lot of coffee, literally have a lot of coffee, put on the Alexa, and uh, work. That's no it. music to kick your day off? You work in silence? Yeah, I tend to work in silence in the beginning of the day. I listen to NPR for the first, like, two hours of the day to hear the news and whatever else. Then I'm silent. And then later on, I'll put in some music. How about your favorite weekend breakfast? I love eggs. I eat them every day. So, but I, I like making a salad with uh, hummus. I know, I know. I'm going to get it. Egg with hummus. <laughs> Some salsa on the side, bananas, and a mango, and a lot of coffee. All right. Yeah, the hummus and the eggs. I'm, I'm, I might try that just to say I did it. <laughs> um, all right. So best live musical performance you've ever seen? Ooh, I have two that stand out. Well, one is a series of them. I'm a huge Prince fan, huge, since I was a pretty young girl. I went to see him like five times. I would say the last time I saw him, I thought I was going to like just faint and fall out. It was like amazing. He ended with Purple Rain and I just, you know, my friend took me to see him for my birthday and I just, I lost it completely. I screamed and then I was hoarse for like a week. <laughs> so Prince, <laughs> the final performance I ever saw, saw him in. And I went to see, um, I can't remember, what did I go to see? Ariadne of Noxus at the Met. And that was mind blowing. So yeah, what an atmosphere, too. But, you know, it's amazing to me how often actually not that surprising how often Prince comes up in these questions about most memorable live performance. He's amazing. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. How about most memorable performance of your own? Oh, sure. I would say that um, I was invited by the first woman president of the Republic of Liberia, which is where I'm from originally, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, to sing at her inauguration. And I sang the national anthem. And boy, I just don't think anything can really top that. Wow. Is that a tough song? No, it's not. But it was in front of all of these dignitaries. There were a lot of cameras. It was, you know, broadcast all over the world because, you know, of who she was and what she symbolized. It was pretty amazing. So, yeah. I can imagine. Well, you're a beautiful woman and a beautiful voice to go with it. So that, that must have been a stunning event. So favorite brunch restaurant. Let's stay with New York City. Don't laugh. 
my little diner around the corner. I can't say the food is good, but I know all the folks there. Nobody there was born in this country. I love going there, especially during World Cup. So I would say my little diner around the corner, Beyond. Beyond's, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Shout out to Dion's. I'm, I'm with you there. So um, it sounds like you've done a little bit of traveling, but uh, where have you not been that's high on your list? Senegal. I have to go to Senegal for the food, for the music. Just that is, I would say, top, 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 top on my list. Yeah, some of the art coming out of Senegal is amazing, mm-hmm. too. Huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. How about the best advice you've been given? <sighs> my voice teacher when I was an undergrad, Glenda Maurice, she's an amazing mezzo-soprano. She said, treat people well on the way up because you'll meet them on the way down. All right. Well, hopefully you never experienced that return trip. You keep getting up, but good, good rule to live by. No question. Yeah. All right. Last one of these, Don. Who past or present would you most like to host at an intimate dinner party? Prince, of course. David Bowie, Maya Angelou, my two grandmothers. Well, that's a pretty strong table. Yeah, I think so. Jesse Norman. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a strong table. All right. So let's uh, jump in here. And I, and I want to first thank Valerie Wilson and Mary Wagstaff and the team at Wagstaff for bringing you to the corner table. So, so shout out uh, to those lovely ladies and thank you. So Don, I, I, these days I always ask folks, how are you to start? <laughs> how you doing? I'm pretty good. Uh, I am. I have had the pleasure of being able to work remotely since uh, last year uh, when the pandemic started, really to blow up in March. Uh, I moved to St. Louis for a week and ended up getting stuck here for a couple of months. I have a sister that lives here with her family. And then I went down to North Carolina in the Raleigh-Durham area to help my parents. My father was very sick. And unfortunately, we lost him this January. Uh, but I, you know, I remain in North Carolina with my mom. And I just came back to St. Louis to end the year with my family here. So I would say, considering everything, I'm doing okay. Yeah, yeah I'm glad you're okay. And I'm, my condolences for losing your dad. Where did you grow up? So I partly grew up in Liberia, in Monrovia. And a little footnote, Valerie and I have known each other since we were children. (laughs) We share relatives, but we're not related. (laughs) I wondered if there was a connection there, but okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, And then when we moved to the United States after the coup d'etat in 1980, we settled in Wilmington, Delaware. And that's where I, I would say I finished growing up. And so what, what led to the decision to move to the States? Was it, was it uh, the conditions at home? or? Yes, it was the conditions at home. It was getting pretty violent. It was a little dicey, especially if you had young daughters. You know, it was kind of a wild time. And my parents felt like it was best to take us out of that situation. So we were fortunate to have that flexibility. Frankly, everybody did not. And what led to the uh, decision to move to New York City? Well, I always wanted to live in New York, right? So when we were children, we would come to New York to visit, I would say, at least once a year. And I just thought it was the best place in the world, frankly. And then, of course, I decided to go into the arts and knew that I would eventually have to come to New York. And that's what I did. Yeah, well, it, it is my birth town, and I, I would agree with you 
100%. So where did, when you first moved to the city, what, what neighborhood did you move into? And were you going out? Were you exploring the city? What, what did the city look like to you? Sure. So when I first moved to New York, I actually lived in Jamaica, Queens. My uncle, William and, e- and Auntie Edith were there with my cousins. And so I stayed with them because I, I couldn't really afford to be living in some apartment by myself. And then a really good childhood friend of mine had a studio on the Upper East Side. He decided to leave New York and uh, moved to, I think he moved to Philly first uh, and worked out a deal for me. And I got his apartment. And that's where I've been, Upper East Side, since I moved all right. I love it up there. I, I grew up on the Upper West Side, so just across the park. You spend a lot of time in Central Park? I do. I spend a lot of time in Central Park. I love going to the Guggenheim. I love the Met, of course, and the Neue Gallery, which is one of my favorite spots in the city. Yeah, fantastic. So I want to I want to turn to the uh, New York Food and Wine Festival and, and how that mm-hmm. uh, idea came together. You know, I um, we opened a restaurant on Columbus Avenue, myself and a couple of partners in 1983. And we used to have an annual Columbus Avenue Day Fair. I don't know if that's still happening. I haven't been back there in the fall. Mm-hmm. It happened in September and all the restaurateurs would pull out, you know, and onto the street and the shops. It was just the, the best, best time and maybe a bit of a per- precursor to the Food and Wine Festival. But walk me through the uh, the Food and Wine Festival, how that came to be, your involvement, uh, and right. what that uh, what that first one was like. It sounds like a pretty big undertaking. It was. Uh, I was actually recruited by uh, Carol Chen, who's been in the business for a long time, uh, to join uh, Carlitz & Company, which is where I worked before I came to the Beard Foundation, uh, to serve on the team. So I wasn't there for the conceptualization of it, but I do know that it was sort of the, the younger sister <laughs> of South Beach uh, Wine and Food Festival. That was the general concept. And uh, Food Network was one of the partners um, for that festival. So the first event we worked on was called Sweet, and it was at the Old Tunnel that, you know, had been you know transformed to a venue space. It was so cool. It was my first, I would say, pretty major festival-ish event. I was in charge of uh, getting the chefs signed on, taking care of their menu items and all that. So I had a really specific role. And it was very, very exciting. Step and repeat. You know, the tunnel is a really cool venue as it is anyway. Lots of food stations, dancing. It was a blast. It was really cool. That sounds like fun. Did it did it go off the way that that uh, you had planned? Were there any snafus or anything along the way? I mean, from where I was, it seemed to have gone off extremely well. It was well attended. People were really happy, and it clearly was successful because the festival exists and has been in existence now for a number of years. So, yeah. and where does it happen now, Don? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. I know that they uh, use some of the piers on the West side and other venues. So it's all over the city now, I think. Yeah. I would, I would imagine logistically New York is not one of the easiest cities to plan major events. in. No. And it's expensive. Right. Right. All the way around. So, um, during the nineties, chefs were becoming, uh, stars. And in 1993, with the advent of the food network, um, it accelerated the proliferation of the trend that would lead to chefs becoming household names. 
Uh, your career kind of runs parallel as you began working with the Beard Foundation during this period, I believe, during the, the, the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, but how how did the rise of the Celebrity Chef impact the awards initially? And how has the awards evolved over the years, would you say? Yeah, sure. Well, when I started, <clears throat> excuse me, I do remember those first Food Network days, that's for sure. Um, I think... I think that the awards at the time were still focused on restaurant chefs. Uh, I didn't see particularly a lot of crossover with the television chefs so much, although I think some did cross over, like Emerald, for example. But they were mostly, you know, restaurant type chefs. Um, And they were, you know, they had their name in the industry as as it was. So I don't know... I would say that the awards certainly uh, influenced the rise of the celebrity chef and vice versa. I mean, you know, over so many decades, it just has had to be that way. But it seems like the awards have been mostly focused on, you know, restaurant based chefs, whether or not they were on TV or not. Right. But would you say that the um, the 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 increased visibility that those chefs received, was that something that um, that the James Beard Foundation weighed into their process at all? Or they were completely, you know, they, they looked the other way and they really, their their, their criteria was, it, was it from a different list? Uh, well, I'll just tell you, based on my experience working, uh, working on those awards, it seems to me that it probably did influence it uh, to a certain degree. Uh, it certainly highlighted the culinary arts more because now it was more accessible to your average person. And I I would imagine that it probably made the awards more visible to someone maybe outside of the industry. So I would, I would say that. Yeah. And and I guess this question kind of goes to process and I don't want to get too deep in this because we'll, we'll come back to this, but as the business, as the industry itself grew rapidly over that period of time, and we're talking about a lot of restaurants opening, a lot of um, uh, emerging markets, and so more people in the industry. What what challenges did that pose for James Beard in terms of locating talent? I mean, just more people. It's, I would imagine the process became a little bit more complicated. It probably did. But honestly, I was not as involved uh, in the process at that point in my career. I had uh, I was a manager and I focused mostly on the process in terms of like, you know, receiving entries and what have you. And then also on the awards ceremony. But I will say that I can't imagine that uh, increasing the spotlight on chefs did not have an effect on the processes of the awards. Yeah, no, a good answer. And, and and certainly and the prominence of the awards, too, I think right. that they, you know, as the industry got bigger, the awards got more prominent. So and, and here we are referring to them as the Academy Awards of uh, of our industry. So tell me about the inspiration for Harlem Eat Up. You know, as a, as a native New Yorker born and raised on the Upper West Side, I've seen Harlem, you know, go through its changes and then, you know, slowly start to come into its own uh, in the, I'd say in the 2000s with the state office building, Bill Clinton after office took an office in the state office building, Marcus opened up mm-hmm. Red Rooster. But, you know, there was, there was a good bit of momentum going. But but what did you see, Dawn? What was in your mind that made you think, hmm, this is, Harlem is ripe for its, for its own food event? 
Sure. So, I mean, I think that collectively as a group, it was Marcus, uh, Herb Carlitz, myself, and a bunch of other folks who uh, put this uh, festival together. It's like, well, we've got Brooklyn. I love Brooklyn. Brooklyn had its brand that existed. And here is Harlem, literally a cultural hub, not just for African-Americans, but for the entire country. I mean, it's so historically relevant, like other parts uh, in the country. Why doesn't it have its own festival? There's so much to do here. There's so much to eat, so many different types of cuisine you can find in Harlem. Why not celebrate it on a much larger scale? And so we went to work to do that. And so what was the first year like? What? How did that go? Did it go as planned? <laughs> <laughs> what was that like? Ooh, man, I'm telling you, I still remember I worked like crazy. We all worked like crazy. It was very exciting. And I think that in general, it was a big success. What we did, I feel, is that we created a festival that was not just about food, but also culture. And it was a festival that really shone a light on the talent in Harlem. It also shone what hospitality means in Harlem, from the Harlem perspective, by inviting uh, chefs from other parts of the country to co-host and participate in our events. And it was for the community as well as for those who maybe have never ventured up to Harlem or only came once or whatever. So we try to make it for as many people as possible. So I think that it was successful and we just kept, you know, tweaking it as the years went by. Yeah. And, you know, Dawn, I mean, the, the implications are far reaching, you know, when you when you start to bring, especially and we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit um, relative to Beard, to James Beard and, and the selection process and some of the heat you guys caught a couple of years ago. But when you're bringing cultures together, like inviting chefs from outside of the Harlem community from around the country to to participate in an event like that, it does. It is a bridge. You know, and that is a very necessary thing to happen. Were you were you consciously doing that or was that just kind of happening as you were putting it together? Did you were you aware of this cultural bridge that you were creating? We were. We were aware of it, I think. You know, first of all, it was smart to do that because what you're doing is you're expanding the reach of the festival, right, from being locally based to being more regionally and more nationally based. So that's just for practical reasons you want to do that. You want to reach as many people. And you also want to position or reconfirm the position of Harlem as a place of welcome, don't you, right? You want to show that food is our unifying factor as living beings. If you sit with somebody who might have a totally different point of view of how the world runs or how it should be run, and you share a meal, you break bread with them, you will affect change by just doing that. And I feel like that festival that we all put together really ended up doing that. And Valerie was a part of that, by the way. You mentioned the, the culture and, and, you know, of course, we're, we're talking hospitality. So that's very, that's in the ethos of anything that we do. You know, I, in a, in a, a neighborhood that I hate to use the term gentrification because I just think that it can mean a lot of different things. But when you got a community like Harlem that has such strong history and you've got changes that are happening in that neighborhood and newcomers coming in that, you know, and then the, the folks who've been there for a while feel like some of the new stuff doesn't necessarily isn't meant for them. How did you work with a local community to make them feel like this was as much their event as anyone's? You know, it was a process. 
you know, to be transparent. It was definitely a process because it's quite a balance to do that. It's quite a lot of thought and experience in doing that. And I think uh, we wanted to make sure that some of the old guard restaurants were included as much as uh, possible. We had to tweak a few things along the way to really make it, to really engage the community even more. So we worked with both local regional and both local, I'm sorry, and regional uh, marketing folks, PR folks, we made sure that we were hiring not just, you know, our regular events folks, but also hiring locally. We, uh, I think in the second and third year, ensured that when we were ordering, you know, meals for a crew, for example, that we ordered from local restaurants. And those are things that, you know, we sorted out along the way. We made some mistakes and then we try to fix them. And we try to make sure that we had programs that anybody could go to. So for examples, we had dinners where we would pair, you know, a local chef with a visiting chef. You probably went to, I'm sure, a couple of those. Those were always cool. And then we had a big grand tasting. We had a paid section, right? And where we served wine, spirits, and what have you, and it was had an age limit. And then there was also a free section called the marketplace. And you could just sort of like graze around and, you know, purchase a plate of food from somebody. We had activities for children. Uh, we had a free uh, demo stage. So we tried to incorporate elements from the beginning for, I would say, any pocketbook as much as we could. Fantastic. Well, you know, once again, I, I just have to commend you and the team that uh, that put that together because it's just such a, a, a great opportunity for Harlem to see itself and show itself to um, nationally and, and internationally. So is Harlem Eat Up back on for 2022? You know, I haven't heard that it is, but I will say that uh, during the pandemic, of course, you know, we had to postpone it and eventually cancel the live festival because of COVID. And we pivoted there's a word i don't ever want to use again but we pivoted <laughs> to produce a one-hour special it was a fundraiser for our charity partners uh that we, we had worked with over the last few years and that was really really neat uh we had celebrities very well-known celebrities we had our local harlem chefs restaurateurs personalities all participated in that show and this year i left carlet's but my friends there and some of my production friends there produced a fabulous show. So we, so they've had two now television specials. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I, I hope it comes back on in 2022. I, I look yeah. forward to that. That's a lot of fun. So it takes us to the present. So if you would describe your role as the vice president of awards with James Beard, how long have you held that position and what's that job entail? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Where the, can short, I start? the short version. <laughs> a good day. <laughs> well, so the role is a new one for the foundation. It didn't exist before this before this uh, this past year. My role as VP of awards was first and foremost to oversee the audit of the awards policies and procedures, to work with all of the stakeholders involved in that, and to lead the implementation of all of the recommendations that came to fruition uh, as the result of that audit, is to strategize overall on the awards program, work on the ceremony, and you know, add some new flavor to it, basically, in my own language, <laughs> uh, and really 
ensure that the awards are aligned with the people first values of the foundation and the good food for good tenant of the uh, foundation's mission. All the easy stuff. No, no heavy lifting there. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, ongoing calls for diversity and inclusion grew louder in 2020. Mm -hmm. To the credit of the folks at uh, James Beard, your alarm bells actually were ringing internally a few years before worldwide protests and racial justice took to the streets. Last year, James Beard Foundation decided to cancel the awards, creating quite a dust up in the industry. I'm, I'm sure you heard of that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Of course, um, all of this was happening during a worldwide pandemic when restaurants were front and center and hospitality was one of the hardest hit industries. I'll just read a little uh, a little uh, headline here from Eater in August of 2020. No black winners and rampant allegations led to the cancellation of the James Beard Awards. The allegations range from bullying to sexual harassment, leading the foundation to reassess what constitutes award-worthy chef behavior. And that's per the New York Times. So I don't know if, if that would be your take, but my, I guess my question is to the extent you're comfortable sharing, can you take us through the events that led to canceling last year and give us a sense of what was being discussed in those rooms, given all that was going on? Sure. Well, I mean, I started my job in February. So just for full transparency, I was not in any of those rooms. I saw on the sidelines what was going on or what I thought was going on anyway. Here's how I would put it. I would say that we had what I would call a perfect storm. We have COVID-19 and its impact on the restaurant industry, as you noted. Uh, We had uh, allegations coming up about, you know, bad actors in the industry as well. And I think all of those things, along with protests and what, what have you, accelerated what I think the foundation was looking to do, which was to look at their policies and procedures, kind of take a step back and say, well, what are we doing here? What are these awards? Who are they for? What do they mean? You know, so that's how I would put it. Mm-hmm. A perfect storm. Uh, that it was, yeah. <laughs> um, and we're, we're still uh, dealing with some of the ramifications of it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and you know, Don, again, I'd like to give the foundation props for recognizing issues and making a serious commitment to chart a revised path forward. I think, you know, bring you on board is certainly an indication that they, you know, they were serious about that. Um, You know, I'd be remiss if I did not add that, uh, as it turns out, in October of 2018, I sent this letter to the awards after reading about a renewed commitment to diversity. I'll read it. It's, It's very brief. And I wrote, Dear Editor, it is encouraging to see the steps the foundation is taking to become more inclusive. I am a second-generation African-American restaurateur with over 30 years of experience. I would like to be considered for a position on your diversity committee and to have the opportunity to contribute to this worthy effort. I did receive, that's the end of the letter, I did receive a reply uh, from then Chief Strategy Officer Mitchell Davis. Uh, We did have a meeting and several emails over the course of a year 
And then Mitchell did help to facilitate an article that I wrote for the James Beard Foundation entitled Warhols and Fried Chicken about my dear friend, Alberta Wright, who owned Jezebel. Uh, and I wrote this after her passing. For 26 years, he owned Jezebel in the theater district. You know, in, in my opinion, and, and probably uh, I'm not alone. I know she inspired Marcus and, and lots of folks around the country. But uh, to some of us, her restaurant may be the finest Black-owned fine dining restaurant in history. So, uh, but she's never either received any acknowledgement from James Beard. So after I wrote my piece, uh, I never heard anything further from James Beard. And uh, of course, you know, I recognize that an inquiry in and of itself is no guarantee, you know, just because I asked, I should be granted. But the fact that there was a need that was stated by JBF that, you know, they were looking for someone like me and or folks like me, and I showed up. Uh, and then in my case, I felt the ball had gotten dropped was indicative of something. So, you know, give me your take on that. And, and how do you think the process looks different or works differently going forward? Sure. Well, I'll say this about the James Beard Foundation and their continued work to improve on equity and diversity uh, overall. One of the reasons I joined the organization was because I was impressed by existing programs and the new ones that have come up, you know? So they have a really cool women's leadership program that focuses on women in the industry. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about their boot camp program as well for chefs. Um, they have a community imperative. It supports the food and uh, hospitality industry. They have online sessions, you know, covering topics such as mental health. Uh, they have a new program called Beard House Fellows, and it takes place at the house. So it's transforming that space into a hub for training and professional development of talented emerging chefs. And that's a real nice, diverse group of kids. I guess I'm old enough to say kids. <laughs> Young chefs. And that's really exciting and very promising. They have a legacy network program. It's training emerging leaders um, across the culinary industry. It connects them with future generations. So there's been work. And I think, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily know about all these other programs. And I think it's important to state them, right? Because the awards are one of all of these programs. It's under that umbrella, really should be under that umbrella of good food for good. It's imagine a circle, you as somebody in the industry, a profession in the industry, you hit or can possibly hit one or more of those points in the cycle in your career. Maybe you won an award and maybe you decide like two years later to change from being a restaurateur to being a food stylist. I don't know. I'm just making that up. For a podcast host. <laughs> oh, oh, thank you. A <laughs> podcast host. Perfect. Exactly. <laughs> you know, we have programs and we certainly will be developing more programs to hit all of those points. That's the whole point of the foundation being there. It's, it's in a great position to serve as uh, a leader in the industry to affect change and to support those in the industry. As far as the awards are concerned, you know, the work that we put into that audit was specifically to implement more equity. That's racial and gender equity more accessibility. So the core of the awards, of course, is excellence, right? It's a competition. Let's be clear about that. It's excellence. But what else is there? What are you doing in your own way 
in your corner of your of the world to further your industry? How are you supporting your community or, or how are you building community? How are you making sure that your staff's taken care of to the best of your ability? All of these things matter, including sustainability as much as you can. Yeah, that's a that's a broad spectrum of uh, of things and objectives, but uh, all very worthy and uh, just great to hear the words, you know, coming from someone like yourself who's in an influential position there. And you know, just before before we um, move on, because I I do want to, I'll read a brief statement that uh, came out from James Beard, just talking about some of the new, some of the changes and some of the policies that have been implemented, some of which you, you know, just talked about. I want to, I guess, you know, in reading up a little bit about James Beard, the man, you know, he supposedly was very progressive and anti-elitist, right? And Greenwich Village historically is a very avant-garde community, downtown Manhattan poets, you know, you, you name it. But somewhere along the line, I guess my question would be, because I think I see sometimes this cultural elitism that exists in hospitality, in the restaurant space. And I try to trace that to something. Now, I know that, um, you know, French cooking was was such a prominent um, influence in American cooking. And then mm-hmm. we developed American cooking and folks like James Beard and Julia Child and, and those folks came along and we started regionalizing, you know, various cooking of this country. But there's when I when I think of James Beard as as someone who is progressive and, and anti-elitist, what do you think if you agree with my perception that that exists as cultural elitism, where do you where do you think that comes from and where in the the cycle or the arc of progress are we in terms of trying to uh, address that? Sure. Yeah. You know, I think things things happen without being intentional. Things happen without without people being intentional. Um, I think that. The awards may, over the years, have been more of a reflection of some of the inaccessibility in the industry, right? We know that the industry is open to all, or certainly has, I shouldn't say that, I should say like there's a broad spectrum of people, kinds of people, race, gender, et cetera, background in the industry. But there there has not always been accessibility for certain folks, to move up in that industry. And so then what you end up with is a smaller group of people who might be considered over and over again. That's my impression, having not worked on it for some years, but just observing, right? And I also think that culturally, and this is not just about this industry or food media, but just overall, we tend to be very Eurocentric in how we think and what we consider to be great. So of of course, French uh, technique is important. It it has a place clearly in the history of cuisine in this country, but there are other techniques, other food ways that have had insane influence on the way, on, on what American food is, right? And so I think we are at a place where we need to, we are acknowledging more and more all of those other food ways that create what we call American cuisine. That's important. We have to create a stage or a more even playing field for those to coexist, for those to be considered, you know, for an award. 
for that matter to just exist for people to actually try them. Very, very eloquent. I, I would agree with you. And and it just makes me even happier to know that that you're at the table that, that you're at. So I'll read just a quick quote and get your comment on the other side of the James Beard statement. The entry and recommendation period for the 2022 James Beard Awards is open through November 30th, 2021. The 2022 awards will be the first since changes to the awards were made as a result of a comprehensive audit, which involved an extensive overhaul of policies and procedures for the program. Visit our policies and procedures page for more information on updated award categories and eligibility. So again, hats off to the awards for, you know, taking this initiative, really putting it out there and saying, this is what we're doing. We ran an audit. We took a look. We found some problems and we're working on it. Basically, right? Yes, that's right. We're really excited about this being the first open call for entry since uh, since the audit was completed. I'll just give you a few highlights mm-hmm. on some of the changes. First of all, I would say that we've created what we call a North Star. We renewed the mission of the awards, excellence in culinary media and the a broader food system that's mostly for our leadership awards but also a commitment to one or more of our pillars equity sustainability accessibility and of course all the values of the foundation too many to name but they're awesome community respect you know so that's really important we require now for every applicant or someone who is recommending on behalf of uh, of a person or or entity to write what we call a mission alignment statement. And it sounds very much like, oh my God, I got to write a paper. It's not. What it is, is it offers the applicants the opportunity to provide context to the work or the body of work. What are you doing in your world? Kind of what I said a little bit earlier to further your industry. It could be as simple as creating a dining experience or writing about a dining experience that enhances and serves the community. It could be writing about a cuisine that acknowledges its history and cultural context. You know, you don't know who who are your readers? Have they ever heard of, you know, a particular dish or ingredients that might be in a lot of the foods that they eat, but they don't know where it's from? How are you making your restaurant more equitable? How, you know, what's going on with your staff, for example. These are just examples. So it's, and and what we're doing is to make it really accessible. Everybody's not a writer, right? You can write up to 150 words. We want it in your own words, your own language. We're looking at content. We're not looking at fluency in language. You can make a video recording if you're comfortable doing that. Speak your own words. And if you're not comfortable being in front of a camera, then audio works. So you have these options for uploading your statement, but it is definitely something that we are requiring. Um, And this really helps us keep to the alignment of the awards and what they mean. Who is a James Beard winner that's in the mission? You know, who are the people who are voting? They are upholding our mission. They're committed to the pillars of that mission. They're committed in their own way and in their own profession to the values of the foundation. That's what I mean by a North Star. And you know, anybody who feels like they can throw their hat in the ring should do that. These awards are for for you, no matter what you look like, you know? Every bit counts in making the industry more equitable and more sustainable, you know? Well, you know, Don, I I will say this, that, um, you know, you have a powerful voice and 
The industry as a whole, and I'll speak, you know, as someone who's been around, you know, a few decades and, mm -hmm. you know, has seen some of the behavior, you know, that that uh, has become a little bit too much a part of the headlines lately and and know that our culture had to change. And um, so you're, you're dealing with issues on multiple fronts. And I and I think overall what you're what you're doing here is you're raising the bar for those of us that are in this industry in terms of, you know, why we're here, what we should, what kind of workplaces we should have. Um, I just say, I, I just feel really good about the society impact that uh, the, the kinds of things that uh, are objectives that you just listed. Uh, it just makes me feel good knowing that uh, those are the objectives. Thank you. And that makes me feel good to hear that from you. You know, that's a big deal. Um, a couple of things that I did want to to mention uh, is that for the media awards, which I know we didn't talk about too much, those are for book and broadcast and journalism. They have a fee, right? They've always had an entry fee. What we did was we cut the fee in half. And also you can state if you are unable to pay that fee and, you know, so that we can waive it for you. That's a possibility as well. So that's another way in how we want to make the awards more accessible so that we have a broader range of people who feel that they can actually enter. That's a really big deal. Yeah. So that's one thing. And then as far as, you know, allegations and sort of some of the, you know, messy parts of life <laughs> that one has to deal with, we created one of the, one of the things we did was we created a code of ethics. It's very clearly stated. And we also are putting together an ethics committee that will independently review any allegations that may come up uh, for a potential you know, recipient of an award. So I did want to mention those two things. Yeah, no, fantastic. Uh, uh, thank you for adding that. So um, for, for anyone who's attending the ceremony itself, will it look different than this year than years past or pretty much the same format? Well, we're working on that. So to be announced later, uh, we're looking to have uh, a weekend of fabulous festivities. So we'll, we'll announce that a little bit later, but we'll be in June of next year, which is different from the past year. It's always been in May. We extend it to June. And I think so. I think that, you know, again, the themes of the, I shouldn't say themes, but that's what they are. The themes, meaning the pillars of the mission of the foundation and of the awards specifically will probably be even more prominent. Uh, we had a special ceremony this year. We didn't hand out awards, but we did hold a special ceremony in Chicago, our, our uh, host city, called Stories of Resilience and Leadership. And I think that that is sort of, I'll call it the prelude, to use my musical terms, to what I think the direction in which the foundation and the awards are going. Gotcha. So are the awards going to take place in Chicago? Yes, they will. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, maybe you get Chance the Rapper to, uh, to open the show for you. He's a native of Chicago. <laughs> That'll be pretty fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll call them after the show. Yeah. Good. Um, so the cutoff date for submissions, Dawn, is when? Cutoff date is November 30th. So it's coming up right after Thanksgiving weekend. Please submit so that you are counted and considered. Uh, for more information, you can go to jamesbeard.org uh, backslash awards. And you'll see all the details there for how you should submit. Okay, fantastic. Well, that, that'll be very helpful to our listeners. So we're winding down. and um, But before I let you go, as I mentioned, you're a classically trained soprano. And I watched a video of you performing. And my goodness, your voice is 
incredible. I mean, just just amazing. When did you discover that gift? Did you just open your mouth one morning and start singing to your mom? Or how did that happen? <laughs> that's a really good PR story, but no, that's not what happened. <laughs> it's close. No, I would. So when I was a kid, my sister Shirley was more of a tomboy and she was always out playing. And I would go in my mom's uh, bathroom and my mom and dad's bathroom and I would get her Chanel lipstick, put it on, get her brush and sing for hours in the brush. I loved singing, <laughs> even though I played piano when I was, a, you know, for years when I was a kid. I think that when I was in high school, I joined the church choir. And when I was getting ready to go to uh, university, our uh, music director said, you know, you should apply for a, non, a non-major, like a scholarship or something for non-music majors. So I did. And they were like, oh, you know, you can really sing. And then I got that bite. And that was it. That's amazing. So maybe we see you perform at the awards one year, no? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. You don't know. <laughs> so tell me, what, what, uh, what part of the awards do you most look forward to good food when it's finally all said and done and the, the job is completed and you can put your feet up. But what, what, what part stands out for you the most? I think, I think I'll be excited to hear who the winners will be. I'll be excited to see, see what happens there. I'll be excited to eat and see people in the flesh again. We've all been, you know, isolated with this crazy pandemic. So it'll be great to be in communion with so many folks in the industry. And I'd say most importantly, I'm looking forward to the show at the end of the day. I love shows and this, this will be one and it'll be wonderful and hopefully impactful and hopefully for the audience connects our awards to everything else that we're doing as an organization, really here to serve folks in the food media and the culinary industry. Then we know we are doing our jobs and we will continue to improve and tweak as we go along. Well, I, for one, am so glad that you are back. And uh, I commend you, Dawn, for for the incredible work that you do. And uh, just thank you so much for joining me at, uh, at Corner Table Talk today. Thank you so much. I just want to give a shout out to my team, Katrina and Kate. I want to give a shout out to Tanya Holland, fabulous chef, who is the chair of the awards committee that oversees all of the um, other committees. And of course, to the leadership at the James Beard Foundation and all the staff, amazing people, really, and all the committees. And they were smart enough to choose you for the position that you're in. So I give them props too. Thank you, Dawn. Thank you. Well, everyone, it is time for my dear friend, Ambassador Shabazz, and our segment we like to call How We Move. Ambassador, how you moving? I'm moving. I'm actually moved. I'm like thrilled. I mean, first of all, I'm always uh, locked in as soon as you start your introductions for your guests. Um, so eager to listen to the forthcoming chat between you and whoever it is that's coming on in today was no shortage of that. First of all, remember the song, Michael Jackson's song, Liberian Girl? Liberian Girl. There you go. See, you didn't even know what a Liberian girl was. You just thought it was his fancy, right? (laughs) So when I think about the power and origins of a Liberian girl, and in this case of a Liberian woman, it's just she resonates with all the things we need to learn more about the country, the origins. And Liberia 
meaning free land, um, was founded in 1824 by enslaved African-Americans who repatriated the African continent. And that's 40 years before the Emancipation Proclamation. So when we made such a big deal last year about having knowledge or acknowledgement regarding Juneteenth, you want to say there's so much history about the spirit of the African and the African-American, whether it's the originating continental Africans or those of us in the Western hemisphere going back in that cycle. It's long before 23andMe, right? And she is the origin of that circle of the African migration before the Emancipation Proclamation. So that's just something that people start to Google and learn and understand. And the capital, Monrovia, which she referenced, is named for James Monroe, who happened to be the US president at the time. So for some reason, he got credit. <laughs> you know, notwithstanding the people of the country that um, we need to learn more about. I'm really curious. I know many Liberians who, like her family, um, found themselves in the United States following the coup d'etat in 1980. I know family members of the president who was assassinated at that time, and it's two generations later. And talk about the resilience of a people and what what we are the beneficiaries of just on this side without even knowing the background of all of those things. So when she spoke about singing at the inauguration of the first female president of Liberia, uh, Madam Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, it was likened to Marian Anderson singing at the Lincoln Memorial in 1939. Powerful, powerful. So we should know her Excellency Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the same way we know Nkrumah for being the initiator of the African Union, or Mandela for um, his effort to remove the um, structure of apartheid in South Africa. We should know Ellen Sirleaf. And so that then we'll understand how someone like Dawn Padmore, while American on this side, gets to go home and the honor and distinction of singing for that president there is just thrilling. So just when it opened with that, I said, we don't even have to go to food. Given given that historical context, and thank you for that, there definitely were some items in there that, that I was not, and I would imagine most people weren't aware of. But no, when, you, when you put all of that context into the frame here and you think about someone like Dawn at James Beard, and the role that she's going to play there. You know, given the history, given where she comes from, her, her intellect, the, the, just the level of um, good spirit she brings to that position, what, what are your thoughts about the impact well, potentially I, that I, she can have? If I had not listened to your podcast, if I had not heard, I mean, I'm certain everybody that's in the industries, both culinary and general hospitality, is familiar with the distinction of James Beard Foundation. But who knows that there's a Black woman that's an architect of so many of the decisions and its ethical watch, let's say. Um, I was delighted to hear that, you know, and it makes me want to know more. First of all, I loved her laughter. I loved her certainty. I love what she brings, her interest in in making sure that Harlem has a voice, and not just as a tourist spot, but that it's root in history. And certainly a Liberian would understand the significance of that being a person who walks with it. It means she's amongst people, I'm sure, all the time since her school days that don't realize what it is to be Liberian 
right? And what in the context to American history. So for her to be amidst and behind and part of the metronomic decisions or the watch at James Beard Foundation makes it a little bit more accessible and contemporary. I think there are a lot of people who probably feel a little distant, not seen, but we should make sure people know her name so that she's also supported in the context of that um, very distinguished foundation. Um, you started to talk more about James Beard himself. I, I don't think people know him as a human being. So history matters. Talking about it matters. Folklore stories. We have to know what people are connected to because we're not just loitering. There are a lot of people putting the time in that needs to be discussed. And as I mature, age and the things I've been involved in just the last month, um, making sure that the bridges of clarity of who's doing what and the tag team that's required to make sure that this equity goes around and it's not just a fashion terminology or a trend effort, but that there are people at the wheel in the engine, you know, um, making sure that motor is in, is in motion and just, you know, very excited, very excited to hear the distinction of Lady Padmore and her capacities and what she's yeah. doing with her olive branches. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think, you know, to your point, and, and this came up in the conversation with Dawn, and I meant it uh, sincerely, you know, we, we spend a good amount of time, and I think, and rightfully so, um, calling attention to the areas throughout culture and recognition and corporate America where, you know, entertainment industries, talent agencies, where we feel an underrepresentation. Yeah. And yet I do want to, you know, sound the, um, the more positive uh, note when I feel and see that there's an honest and sincere attempt at progress and directing, you know, a, a new kind of path. Um, and that's what I felt, you know, the James Beard Foundation really stepped up and showed. And I think Dawn's appointment to that position, a serious one and a meaningful one, right. I think also carries that weight. And I think at this point, we really do need to know, know and own our place in the world and not presume that others will be kind enough and or merely attempt, but we just have to stake our place at the table, right? That Because there's a, there's a fact in our existence and our contribution and the wealth that circulates. And I mean, wealth and currencies that are not just about money, but in knowledge and pride and all of those kinds of things. We have to make sure the hosannas or the hallelujahs or the acknowledgements, the thank yous go out. As people are preparing for this year's year-end holiday seasons, Thanksgiving, how they gift, how they share, you know, I just hope that I can be an encouraging voice for us to be much more conscientious about our acts of consideration and, and giving and sharing. You know, um, years ago, um, as many in your audience know, I curate delegations. And for a number of years or Thanksgivings, we created delegations abroad that were really less about the pilgrims in New England or even a turkey, but rather defined by actively giving, you know, um, and participating, touching down. We, we did break bread, but it was much more of a, now they would say service, but it really was exchange. It was the fellowship. And so there are more and more people we're finding year after year that are in need of a care box. And so how do we define this Thanksgiving, you know, 
And I'm thinking that we can be creative. We've learned in the last year, year and a half, that there are many ways to fellowship. So you can design, you know, a table. I think about your question when you say, with whom would you love to share a meal with? And so with that, you know, I'd like to ask your audience to curate or create Thanksgiving this year with a profound meaning with all your loved ones, you know, like designing a thank you table or a, a Zoom dining room, you know, share a menu, uh, open with a blessing, a prayer, a toast, whichever fits that gathering, break bread, exchange fellowship memories, joys, similar to the questions that and the answers and responses that your guests give th so thoughtfully about whom they would break bread with. And um, and also think about when that table, who what's that list look like? Who, who would you spend your Friday with? Who would you give? Who would you prepare that care box or that donation or someone with those with those thoughts in mind and I know that you I know your schedule and I know that you've been you know on the road you know 10 different cities and you know not many more days than that and I know that you quietly give in every stop there's something that is required of you someone is waiting for something from you and you give quietly and without a lot of publicity you don't have a team that follows you around so but given that and since you brought it up I would like to ask you this Thanksgiving who would you like to have at an intimate dinner party if you were hosting and what might we see on that dinner table well you know I think well this gets emotional well, um, considering the year um, and the blessings that I've experienced, notwithstanding simultaneous to some trials, I would definitely have both of my parents at the table. It's going to be a long table, though. My grandparents, whom I absolutely adored on all sides, and I think others that stepped in to love. These are all actually people that have gone before us. I think about that rolling circle of folks who gave of their hearts to make sure that we were healthy, fine, good, and supported. That to me, this period is very, very important um, in my own life, reflectively, quietly. So I don't know if it would be a, a noisy table or one where I get to go around and make sure that each one respectively knows their value in my life and my gratefulness. At the table, it's going to be mixed because the people in my life, you know, they come from different places and I have to make sure that everyone is breaking bread. I have to say this, that there was nobody in my life that did not enjoy food. And we were all those who marinated and simmered and broke bread and passed things around in ways that there were a lot of hands on each piece. So, you know, we'd have to make sure we were sanitized nowadays. But the fellowship of preparing the food would be just as significant as breaking the bread and eating the food. All right. So I, I need one item I, or a couple of items, actually, because you got me picturing this table and I, I, I need to hear, you know, a food, something to get my mouth watering. <laughs> well, I know that my father and his family loved a three day braised lamb which my mother learned to do well. And it, it is a slow cook, the marinating, the cleaning, the preparing, all of that is a slow cook to the point where the neighbors could smell it and wanted, would sit on the porch and linger. Um, my grandmother loved to make foods 
that had um, a, a variety of vegetables in it, but not not loose things with a nutrition, and she would talk to you about what it's what's happening to your body. So I can't give you flavors now because you caught me off guard, and I'm more in the space of what it does to the heart. What the what the sitting there, I could almost not eat to have them just around the table. Yeah. Yeah, and, and knowing you as I do, you're not one to sit very long. So I could only, I can just picture you moving around that table, making sure everybody yeah. else is good. <laughs> making sure they were all good. Yeah. That's, that yeah. to me would be, so now it's not just the menu and the table, the, it's the food for the soul. It would yeah. mean the, the world to me. Yeah. Well, happy Thanksgiving. And uh, we, we have a lot to be thankful for. And uh, I am grateful that you have been my sister for all these years and continue to be. And we get to do this little dance called How We Move. Indeed, at the corner table. Yes, ma'am. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Thank you. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production.